This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to the all-new Publishers Weekly Radio podcast on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. I'm Rose Fox, and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you, and we want to answer your questions. Send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to pubweeklyradio, that's pubwkly radio, on Twitter. Today, we'll be talking with Reverend Maggie Oman Shannon, the author of Crafting Calm, Projects and Practices for Creativity and Contemplation. Then, PW Religion Reviews editor Marsha Z. Nelson will take us on a tour of the recent International Christian Retail Show. But first, here's this week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. What have you got for us in nonfiction this week, Mark? I'm going to make you go first. Well, there's a lot of, yes, yes. Well, there's a lot of duck uh, uh, these days. Uh, So we've got Phil Robertson's Happy, 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 My Life as a Duck Commander at number one. Number three, The Duck Commander Family. Um, So this is based on the the TV show that uh, has been popular. And uh, we don't see a lot of change on the nonfiction list this week. Uh, We still have uh, Lean In, Women Work, and we also have American Gun. That's the Chris Kyle book. Um, And the one book that is relatively new uh, is uh, Jim Gaffigan's Dad is Fat. He's a comedian who uh, people have compared to, well, this book to uh, Bill Cosby's Fatherhood. Um, one book that was that is creeping up uh, is from Grand Central Station, uh, uh, or I'm sorry, Grand Central Publishing, uh, from 18 to number 11, The Astronaut Wives Club. This is by Lily Capel, and this is the uh, the book about uh, the the wives of all the astronauts in this this uh, kind of informal club that they've all joined uh, and, and become a part of. Um, and one other book uh, that I want to talk about is. Gwyneth Paltrow is still on the list, and she's moving up from 20 to 13 in her book, It's All Good, Delicious Easy Recipes. So uh, anything on uh, the fiction list for you? Well, we do have big news on the fiction list, which is that uh, Dan Brown's Inferno is finally knocked out of the number one spot. Uh, it's been bumped by James Patterson's Second Honeymoon, which is co-authored with Howard Rogan. Um, we didn't review this title, but uh, it's definitely coming out with a splash. Um, still, you know, in, in its first full week on the list, it sold about 49,000 copies, which is no small feat. Um, and it still just bumped Inferno, uh, which sold about... 45,000 copies. So this is uh, obviously a big deal for Patterson and any other author would be happy to have those numbers their first week on the list. But um, there's Dan Brown in week number seven nearly equaling them still. Um, You'd think that after seven weeks, anyone who wanted a copy of Inferno would have one. But apparently uh, some people had to wait for their bookstores to get it back in stock after the first round sold out. Uh, So that's uh, that's our, our big fiction bestseller news. 
Um, and James Patterson also appears of all places at the top of the young adult list um, with oh, really? a, a book called Middle School, How I Survived Bullies, Broccolis, and, Bullies, Broccoli, and Snake Hill. Um, and this, again, is co-written. Uh, the co-author is Chris Tebbets, and it's illustrated by Laura Park. Uh, so apparently Patterson is uh, reaching out into every possible market all at once. And is this, uh, I wonder if this is his first young adult book. He's actually written a couple of them, oh. as I as I recall. Uh, this is definitely not his first time on that list. Right. Uh, but this, this particular one just happens to have just come out and made a splash. Oh, fantastic. Also on the fiction list, um, we've got a few books that are new this week. Uh, Beautiful Day by Ellen Hildebrand is at number six. Um, we called it The Perfect Beach Read. Uh, the Publisher's Weekly Review says uh, the Nantucket setting, a wedding, um, all really combined to make this exactly the sort of summer book that a lot of people look for. And it's not very challenging, um, but it's plenty of fun. And we say the author's straightforward style pulls the reader into the minds of her characters and all the secrets secrets and sorrows that create the universal messiness of major family events. So for anyone who's enduring a wedding this summer, uh, here are some people you can definitely sympathize with. And I'm sure there are many this summer. <laughs> I'm sure there are. That's number six on our fiction list. Uh, at number 15, we have Tell Me by Lisa Jackson, another new one this week. Uh, this is, you know, Jackson does plenty of romantic thrillers, and uh, this one is no exception. It's heavy on the thriller, light on the romance. Um, in, in this case, there's a true crime author uh, who is considering a case for her next book, and then it strikes too close to home. Uh, our review says that readers new to Jackson's work should be prepared for a cliche-ridden prose and strained plotting. Uh, but she's one of those thriller authors who just you know keeps them coming. She knows what her fans want and she provides it. So number 16 on our list is Sisterland by Curtis Sittenfeld. This was one of our PW picks um, for hot books coming out. Uh, and we say that delicious insights into sisterhood and motherhood are peppered throughout Sittenfeld's novel about identical twins with ESP. Uh, and this is, it's not necessarily a fresh perspective on ESP or gifted children, um, but it is a rich and intimate tale of imperfect, well-meaning, ordinary people who are struggling to define themselves and protect the people they love. So that's at number 16 on our fiction list. Oh, fantastic. And I finally had one other that I wanted to pull out of uh, the subject list. You know, we, we have our main lists that are at the, the top of the page, as it were, um, the, the big overall hardcover lists, fiction and nonfiction. But we also have individual categories for various genres. Um, and another one of our picks uh, is now number one on the mystery list after four weeks out. And that's Joyland by Stephen King. Uh, Stephen King is not someone you would expect to see on the mystery list, but this is a thriller uh, published by the Hard Case Crime imprint, which is putting out really terrific pulpy books uh, in, in the pulp mystery thriller tradition. But of course, since it's Stephen King, there is a supernatural spin to events in this period murder mystery set in 1973. Um, and Joyland, the 
place of the title is a North Carolina amusement park. And of course, there's a boardwalk fortune teller uh, and you know, cryptic comments made by you know, unusual children and so forth. Uh, and we say in the PW review of Joyland that King brings his usual finesse to this tale's mystery elements, and he makes the hero's handling of them crucial to the novel's bigger coming-of-age story, in which 21-year-old Devin adapts to the carny life and finds true romance. So there's a little bit of everything in here, uh, and definitely something for everyone. Plus, it's got this just fabulous cover um, that looks like it's from 1973. It, it looks like a Mickey Spillane cover or something. It's it's uh, retro and terrific, which is exactly what Hard Case Crime does. Now, is this unusual for a Stephen King novel, no matter what it may be, not to be on the general fiction list? You know, I don't actually know why it's not on the general fiction list, um, except that, of course, that it's a trade paperback. Right. Uh, you know, otherwise it it would be because it sold twenty six thousand copies this week, um, wow. and the year to date sales are at uh, almost one hundred and seventy four thousand. So that's a pretty big deal for a little press. Uh, you know, it's a it's a, a small print people probably wouldn't have heard of before now uh, unless they're mystery aficionados i've sure. been following hard case crime since the beginning and it's wonderful to see them really breaking out with a big book like this and certainly i hope that more people will pay attention to this little mystery imprint well that sounds great so that's our it looks like that's all we have for our nielsen book scan uh, bestseller list that's it for this week but of course more every week keeps changing I'm Mark Rotella. I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Reverend Maggie Oman-Shannon will tell us how handicrafts could bring some peace and calm into your life. We'll be right back. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Reverend Maggie Oman-Shannon on the line. She's the author of Crafting Calm, Projects and Practices for Creativity and Contemplation. Maggie, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. So your new book is called Crafting Calm, Projects and Practices for Creativity and Contemplation. So tell us about it. I would love to. It's interesting. It came out of uh, a book that I wrote back in 2001 called The Way We Pray, Prayer Practices from Around the World. And basically in that book, I wrote about and researched 50 different prayer practices, you know, taking a very broad definition of prayer. And many of them were creative. And I was so inspired by what I was reading and writing about that I started trying some of these out myself. And basically what Crafting Calm is, is a personal account of my, you know, personal forays into trying these creative prayer or spiritual practices. And, and how did you go about doing it? Can you give us an example of, of, uh, of maybe a project for creativity and contemplation? Yeah, you bet. Um, the, the book is actually organized into eight different sections that kind of suggest a different benefit from certain crafts. So there's calm and comfort, clarity, um, contemplation community, connection, that, that kind of thing. Uh, but a good one that I like to uh, suggest to people, because they may already be familiar with it, is called a treasure map. And basically, it's a collage that you make out of images and words from magazines, usually. And it depicts a dream or a goal that you have. And 
I tell the story in the book about how I found this practice extremely powerful, and I made one back in 1994 that I still have, and I've been taking it to book signings, so it's 19 years old, but it was uh, to get me out here to San Francisco, because at the time I was living in Indianapolis, and I just felt like I need to be out in San Francisco, and I made this wonderful treasure map uh, depicting landmarks from the Bay Area. I looked at it. It was part of my prayer and meditation time, and four months later, I was hired for a job out here, and uh, I've been here ever since. Wow. And, And can you tell us what this looks like, what this collage looks like? You bet. I, I actually did it a little bit differently from uh, the way you often see them. Usually people make them out of poster board that I think uh, is 24 by 36, roughly, the, the big pieces of poster board that you find in office supply stores. But this particular one uh, is more of a the size of a panorama print from a camera back when we used to make those. And so it's relatively small. It's probably, you know, 12 to 16 inches long. And Time Magazine back in 1994 had a great uh, advertisement of pop-up buildings from the San Francisco downtown area. So I've got a Coit Tower, a Transamerica building, and a Golden Gate Bridge that are literally three-dimensional. And I placed those on the on the treasure map. And what I'd love to tell people is that the Golden Gate Bridge was the primary image on this treasure map. And the job that, that I got required me to commute across the Golden Gate Bridge uh, to Sausalito. So I really do believe there's a great power in visual images. That sounds pretty incredible. Um, now, I'm I'm not particularly religious, personally, but I love handicrafts, and I could definitely use some more calm in my life. So, uh, would your book be useful to someone like me? Absolutely. And, you know, thanks for making that um, comment, because, you know, I'm a minister, and so my, my day job uh, kind of has me defaulting into those kinds of areas. But, but, yes, these crafts can be made by anyone, whether you have an interest in, um, you know, spiritual matters or whether you're just looking for some calm, something to just take you to a deeper and calmer place, because... Uh, as you know, living in New York City, as we all know, living in 21st century America, um, it's so easy to get off track, to get distracted. You know, we see the little scrolls on the bottom of our um, television sets or log on to the Internet and see headlines that are disturbing. And so I really see a lot of these crafts, if not all of them, as ways to just kind of reconnect with that part of us that is, um, you know, the highest and best part of us where we can just remember who we are and what it is we're trying to do in our lives and in our world. So, yes, this absolutely um, can be used by anyone, and I think that that everyone can uh, experience some of the wonderful benefits that, that approaching crafts with this intention can give you. I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Maggie Oman-Shannon about crafting calm, projects and practices for creativity and contemplation. Maggie, this book was released on Mother's Day. Do you see this as a woman-centric topic, or was that just marketing? You know, it, it's a great question. I, I, I think primarily um, w- women are the people, at least that I've seen in book signings, that are responding to it. But I also have seen men, and I did make a conscious point to include 
anecdotes of male crafters because they certainly are around us and just to give them encouragement too. And there's a, a story in the book about a man who's a very accomplished beater and needlepoint worker and he tells how thrilled he was when he found out that there's a Flickr site called Manbroidery. So there are, you know, <laughs> lots of vehicles oh, and, and in that funny um, community opportunities for male crafters as well. Well, uh, and yes, this is definitely for both genders. Yes, because I've I've known a lot of men uh, who craft. I definitely uh, I joined a, a sewing circle many years ago, and you know there was one guy who showed up who was built like a football player, and he did the most exquisite needlepoint. So uh, there's there's definitely room for everybody. But I was I was just uh, noticing that you know, featured prominently in the publisher's materials about it, and so I was uh, wondering if that was a focus. Yeah, it, you know, I mean, I, I think it was thought that this would be a lovely gift to give uh, women who might be interested in crafting, but uh, the book itself was constructed so that men would also find inspiration in it. Now, the book covers a wide variety of crafts, uh, and some of them are linked to specific religious or cultural traditions like Native American talking sticks or Buddhist mandalas. So uh, tell us a little bit about how you approached writing about these traditions in a respectful way that honors their origins. Well, yeah, it's it's so important to me to be respectful uh, because, you know, often we hear that certain practices have been appropriated and sometimes out of context. So, you know, my previous five books have been sort of interfaith in focus, and they are all were uh, research-oriented. So in this particular book, which I did write in the first person and which includes more stories, uh, I was able just to include the voices of people who are using these practices as an offshoot of their own faith tradition. So for instance, I interviewed a, a Native American elder and teacher who is actually based in New York City, and uh, he's the one who told the story about prayer arrows. And I was so uh, happy to be able to include his actual words in describing how and why these are made, because it is important to be respectful. There is always a context for these uh, practices that we need to be mindful of and uh, aware of. Now, your second book was How to Make and Use Prayer Beads. What led you to write that book? Yeah, that was actually my third book, and I I co-wrote it. And I wrote it out of a love of of making prayer beads. So, um, yeah, I had started making prayer beads for my 40th birthday. I asked everybody to bring a bead for me. I had 20 women in a circle to, to bring in 40 with me and asked them all to bring in a bead. And it was so magical because every woman had the same assignment and brought in a different kind of bead that symbolized something different. And so I really saw just how powerful the practice of making personal prayer beads can be. You know, I didn't grow up Catholic or in another tradition that uses prayer beads. So I've been very happy to be able to use them in a way that is personally meaningful to me and to introduce other people to the practice because um, there really can be a wonderful, you know, talking about calm, you know, calm and um, contemplation uh, using, you know, that that is fostered by using personal prayer beads and, and making them for a particular intention. 
So is the uh, is the making of the prayer beads also calming? And and what kind of designs do you suggest for in in your book? Yeah, the whole you know it's so interesting in crafting calm, and I actually talk about prayer beads, although I I call it intention jewelry uh, in in crafting calm because that's really the piece to pay attention to is what is your intention for making this piece. So, for instance, I've made beads for my marriage just to have particular things that I want to remind you know remind myself of when uh, being part of a partnership. I've made them for my child. I've made them for my ministry. In fact, when I was ordained uh, at Riverside Church uh, in New York, I made a stole that was um, that included beads from different faith traditions because I was ordained as an interfaith minister and um, wore that as as basically my my stole so um, there are many different ways you can approach them you can approach them for different challenges you might be having. One time a friend made me prayer beads for house, looking for a house, because um, we had three months to get out of our rental and, and find a place to live. So they can be used for many different intentions, and it's just really powerful to have something that you can keep in your purse or pocket and, and pull out when you start to feel a little anxious or when you want to remember what it is that you're, you're shooting for. And also the community aspect of that is so important. Um, When I got married, someone very close to me didn't want to be part of the wedding party and didn't want to be sort of up in front of everybody. And so instead that friend knitted for me um, a a strip of fabric that we used for the hand fasting part of the ceremony. And just having a, a physical representative of someone I was very close to being part of that was very meaningful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's so true. And and one of the crafts that I write about, a, a woman shares her experience baking bread, which is kind of the same thing that you're talking about, and, mm-hmm. and how she very consciously folds in her good thoughts, her good energy, her prayers for the people that she's going to give this loaf of bread to, so that when they eat a piece of bread, they are literally taking in, you know, they're literally consuming her love and her best wishes for them. And I, I love those kinds of examples of, of how something made by another can be so nourishing on, on many different levels um, to the person receiving it because it is a reflection of their um, love for the other person. I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. We're talking with author Maggie Oman-Shannon, and we're talking about her book, Crafting Calm. But you're also an interfaith minister, and you've written not just on beads and crafts, but on how to pray. Tell us about those books. Sure. Yeah, my interest is, uh, it began in uh, 1996, I guess. I was working for the Institute of Noetic Sciences and was given the opportunity to put together a prayer anthology on aspects of healing. So uh, that particular project was very blessed. The book came out in 1997, and the Dalai Lama wrote the introduction to it. Larry Dossi wrote the foreword, and many, uh, you know, big names in, in publishing contributed to it. And that's what really launched me on this exploration of what prayer and spiritual practice is in 
different faith traditions because, you know, with, with the advent of technology and the ability to travel so easily and quickly all over the world, we really have become a global society. And I think it's so important to learn how other people worship and, um, you know, what their concept is of the divine and, and how they strive to live their lives because we are, you know, we're a world community and it's important to understand what we have in common to offer and what people focus on are the differences. And you've also been the editor of three national magazines, including the Saturday Evening Post. And you've written for such publications as the Utney Reader. How have professional writing and editing informed your, uh, your, your mysterial work? You know, I, I just am so thrilled right now because I'm really seeing how these two tracks of my life are interweaving in such a really lovely way. Um, I, I feel so grateful for the opportunity to be able to share what I love and what I feel so passionately about um, with other people through the vehicle of writing. I've always wanted to be a writer. I, I um, had that desire at the age of 12, and in my little childish cursive, you know, I have a little declaration that I want to be a writer, and then I had my first spiritual experience at the age of 15, and so um, these these interests have been twin interests of mine, you know, for 40 years, and uh, it, it's just really lovely to see how they're interweaving uh, now, and I get to uh, write about what I love, my, my spiritual explorations, and uh, vice versa, you know, I, um, I learn things about my spiritual exploration and the in the uh, course of research and writing. So um, I just feel extremely blessed. We've been talking with Maggie Oman-Shannon. You can find Crafting Calm, her latest book in stories right now. Maggie, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Religion Reviews editor Marsha Z. Nelson will take us on a tour of the recent International Christian Retail Show. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, Religion Reviews editor Marsha Z. Nelson is calling in to give us the rundown on the recent International Christian Retail Show in St. Louis. Thanks for joining us, Marsha. Oh, thank you for asking, Rose. So tell us a little bit about this expo. Where does it take place? And um, you know, what, what was it like being there? Walk us around the floor. So it was in St. Louis this year, um, and well, before we got to the floor, you had to get there. It was really hot in St. Louis, <laughs> but once you got inside, it was nice and air-conditioned, and then, I, then it was not as crowded as it used to be. Um, I have been to ICRS for the past, oh, I don't know, seven years, maybe, eight years, mm -hmm. and uh, our colleague, Lynn Garrett, the senior religion editor, has probably been there for almost forever, um, and back in the day, meaning in 1999, there was a, a, a high attendance of, I think, either twelve or 15,000 people. This year, um, we, we just reported total attendance as 3,700. That's a... That's, um, a significant drop, and it certainly explained what, what Lynn and I were seeing in the aisles. They were fairly wide, and we never had a sense of it being terribly crowded. Um, like so many other book shows, it's changed, from, it's changed dramatically from a place where 
booksellers placed orders. Um, there weren't that many booksellers there. Buyers were down to less than 1,500. Wow. So, Marsha, you had said that this, this seems to reflect what's going on in publishing. And can you, can you explain that a little bit more, especially in regards to uh, religion publishing? Oh, um, sure. I don't think religion publishing is any different from the rest of publishing with respect to um, how um, basically houses have shrunk, their lists have shrunk, and this is all post-2008 recession and um, kind of the, the, the digital shakeout that, that, that we see going on right now. One of the things that I think Christian publishers are a little bit behind um, general market publishers with respect to, maybe it's more, I should probably say that more about retailers rather than publishers. Everybody's really been struggling with um, how to incorporate digital into into their life. <laughs> and, you know, if you're a retailer, into their product mix. And I, I think that the, the Christian retailers are a little bit behind general market retailers. The, the publishers are, are, I think, um, have, have met, met the digital revolution head-on and are adjusting. So I see some adjustments going on uh, in, uh, on the retail side, and that's, one of the, that's another reason why the, the, uh, the show itself has shrunk, because there are fewer retail buyers. Um, Christian stores are, are, are closing, although the rate of, of closure, and I'm speaking primarily of the mom-and-pops, the indies, but this is true in the general market as well. So is the ebook revolution affecting religious publishing the way that it's been affecting uh, other segments of publishing? Are you seeing a lot of religious ebooks uh, going for sale online that might uh, contribute to the decline of business at independent retailers and independent bookstores? Um, I'm seeing not so much ebook only publishing. I'm seeing a little bit of that, but what I'm seeing a lot of are um, religious fiction that's coming out in ebook. Um, in fact, um, there was a study done. I think it was sometime this year, um, and, and don't hold me to who exactly did it, but that the Christian segment of fiction is sort of ahead of the rest of the market in terms of. of users or readers who, who are uh, reading through uh, e-readers. Um, that, was, that was actually pretty remarkable. We reported on it at the time the study came out. So, yeah, it's, 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 uh, fiction is really driving e-books in this segment of, of publishing. And I had done a story recently, actually, about uh, the seeming increase in speculative fiction with a religious angle. Uh, I right. guess I wrote about that last year. Is that mm -hmm. something you're still seeing, a lot of Christian sort of fantasy novels, epic fantasy, and that sort of thing? Um, well, I would say it hasn't changed much since you reported on it. It's, it's really highly niche um, where I see it coming up a little tiny bit is that, um, and here is where I think, you know, Christian publishing is a little bit behind the, the, the curve. It tends to emulate, to some extent, general market trends. I'm seeing it in YA and middle grade. That's where I'm mm. seeing the biggest expansion is in the, the, the paranormal and the dystopian kind of stuff that you see a whole lot of dominating um, the, the, the general market in, in YA and middle grade. Um, not so much for adults. Um, it's it's still super niche, as as you well know. Sure. Well, I'm curious to hear about what are the hot titles or the uh, subjects uh, or, or any themes that you saw while you were there, maybe both middle grade and adult. 
Oh, boy. Um, well, I can look forward if that's okay with you. I sure. think particularly because, you know, I just went through, you know, um, um, a, a bear of an announcements issue for religion. So <laughs> so I know what I just picked. Uh, right, um, right. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, let's you see, you know, feel free to talk about that, too. Yeah, sure. Um, the the book that I think will do really well for a variety of reasons is that is coming out in October um, is uh, Billy Graham's new book. Now you might think to yourself, "Wow, isn't he really old?" And and you'd be right. He's going to be ninety five in November. And wow. um, not and you know, I mean, sure, folks work with ghostwriters and sign their name to to books, but and. I don't know to what extent he's done that for a while, but what's really significant is that Billy Graham is still here, and he's still writing, and he's almost 95, and what I think is partly impressive, or additionally impressive about this is he the book promotion is going to be tied up with, um, you may know his, his organization is called the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, so they're going to do a... Um, um, a, a, a revival campaign, and he's going to do a new video message that's going to be shown as part of that. So he's he's too old, um, it would appear, to go out on stage and and barnstorm as as he did in his um, in his extraordinarily influential heyday. But he's up for making a video message. So I I, I think that that will and people would just plain be curious. You know, all of his books um, hit the bestseller list. So I would look. I would look to this again. Um, what do I? What else am I looking forward? There's a new imprint. Um, this is what's kind of significant, I think, about um, the religious slash Christian end of publishing. There are a couple of new imprints. One of which is is um, uh, doing its first list this fall. The other of which is on its like third list. Um, they're aiming sort of at the, the if you will, um, the, the, the less religiously convinced. I don't know if you've been following a lot of the um, articles lately about the so-called religiously unaffiliated. Sometimes they're called the nuns, and that's N-O-N-E-S. Uh-huh. Um, and it's, it's, it, what, it, what that comes from is people who check off none when you ask them when, whenever they're filling out what is your religious affiliation. So they're kind of called the nuns informally, and sometimes when people hear that term, they think, oh, nuns, you know, as in N-U-N-S. No, 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 no. (laughs) They're both religious terms, but they're different. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, uh, the the imprint that's starting this fall is called Convergent, and it's an imprint of Random House, and it is aimed at people who... um, the, the, the millions of people who say, you know, I don't particularly have a religion, but yes, I believe in God, and, and yes, I pray. In other words, they're not, they don't belong to a, a church, a temple, a mosque, whatever, but they're interested in, in uh, religious matters. So that's the second imprint, um, or, or spiritual matters, I should say. Um, that's so really this, seems like a growing, this seems like a yeah. growing population then, especially for Random House to have its own imprint now. Um, based on this, it is indeed. That's why there's such so much public discussion about it. Is because demographics are are showing that this portion of the public is is growing. They're younger people, basically. Um, a, a good a good number of them are millennials. Mm-hmm. 
Could you? I, I'm actually curious about these nuns. Can you tell us a little bit more about them? I, I, I I'm intrigued by. Oh. <laughs> I, I do remember seeing nun on the oh. religion. Oh well, goodness. Um, be careful what you're asking for, because I could positively lecture about. Because I've written about them for for quite a while, and we did actually I did a piece um, that we ran in the beginning of the year in in PW. People tried to talk about well. How are we, you know, publishers that is talk, talked about, how are we going to try and get these people to read um, read some of our books? Um, so they're, they're young. They probably were not raised in any formal religion. Um, they tend to be a little bit better educated. You know, they're more likely to be college educated, for example. And um, uh, they, they're, they're curious. They're spiritually curious. They're not invested in a particular religious tradition because they may have not may have not gotten instruction in one. Mm-hmm. So um, you know, doing uh, you know uh, doing it by the book um, is a lot less committal than doing it by going into a building. <laughs> right. Yeah. Sure. And what what kind of this may be unfair to ask you, but but what kind of books might appeal to these? Like, uh, do you have any uh, titles off the top of your head from this new imprint? Uh, Off the top of my head? Well, let me reach for one on top of my desk. Oh, great. (laughs) Do that. (laughs) Because it is is, um, from the new imprint that I was just, the Random House imprint uh, I was just describing. It's from Convergent, and it is a book called Living the Quaker Way by Philip Gully. Philip Gully is actually a Quaker pastor, and I don't know if you've ever met anybody. It's it's not uncommon in the Midwest where I'm from to to meet people who really admire Quakers because Quakers seem to not necessarily be very much about God, but to 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 be a lot about um, living simply and 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 living peacefully and living. Um, with integrity, those are Quaker values, and those are the kinds of things that people can ascribe to, you know, or say, yeah, I want to do all that, I want to have that in my life, without having to, you know, like, go to church or go to a building and, you know, do a lot of, of more committal, committal and practices. Um, so that's one example, um, is Phil Gully is writing about Quaker values. It's more like, Mark, it's more like religion as a way of life and not as a set of beliefs. Wow. And so, so, uh, so to continue on your thoughts of, the, uh, of other books or other trends you've been seeing. I am seeing um, kind of reimagining of the Bible in a book like Consider the Birds. A Provocative Guide to Birds of the Bible by Debbie Blue. <laughs> hmm. um, I, most people would not think, would not associate the Bible with birds. And so I must admit, I, I heard this touted by, by the uh, publisher's publicist, and I thought, let me take a look at this. Um, and in, uh, in beginning to consider it, um, I, I found it really well written and just really kind of imaginative. Um, it, 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 like, allows you to take almost a kind of a metaphoric approach to, to you know, what's going on in the Bible. Do, um, does it talk it, about the ziz, which is my favorite biblical bird? I know, nobody, nobody knows about it somehow. You know, I haven't 
I've read it all the way through. <laughs> Spell that for me. And I'll, Ziz, and I'll... Z, Z-I-Z. It's, it's one of those, if it weren't a proper noun, it would be a great Scrabble word. Oh, I uh, just think it'd be a great Scrabble word, indeed. Do you know what, what um, book I should look it up in? Or, you know, oh, in I the don't Bible? remember off the top of my head, though I, <laughs> though I, know, it's, I know it's Old Testament because um, it, actually, yeah, yeah. it actually comes up, uh, of all things, in um, uh, some old Passover traditions that I was researching. Oh. Uh, oh, okay. last, uh-huh. last spring, um, but there, there are the three beasts: um, uh-huh. Leviathan, Behemoth, and Ziz, uh, which are the beasts of the the land, the sea, and the air. And right. Okay. Le- Leviathan. Now I know that one, but <laughs> but the Ziz, I'm drawing a yeah, blank on. You know, oh. it's it's just apparently this enormous bird that that just I'll, I'll, shows up out of nowhere. I'll I'll check it out and I'll let you know if Debbie considers the Ziz. <laughs> <laughs> Um, what another thing I'd like to you know the offbeat on the subject of the offbeat um, um, one uh, there is a book of poetry um, coming out and you don't see all that much religious poetry and you certainly don't see all that much good religious poetry um, but this is by someone who's really well known for um, his uh, paraphrase of the Bible. His name is Eugene Peterson, and he has a lot of fans among those who are familiar with his work and with his paraphrased Bible called The Message. Um, He has uh, three collections of poems coming out that I am really looking forward to, and I know that thousands of his readers um, will will feel the same way. Um, Another one I would... Oh, 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 the ideas are coming fast now. I am seeing a, yeah, I'm seeing a lot of books on um, um, interfaith relationships, um, interfaith marriages specifically, and kind of new ways of looking at them now that they're increasingly common or just sort of increasingly diverse, I, I think is what I really want to say. Because now that we're more multicultural than ever, um, you, it's not uncommon for, say, a Muslim to marry a Hindu or something like that. I mean, sure. um, a couple of decades ago or generations ago, when we said interfaith, we mostly meant like Christian-Jewish intermarriage, and now you can get some really interesting combinations. Um, so I'm, I'm seeing lots of books about that, and um, I, I chose to, um, uh, to highlight one of them by, uh, called Mixed Up Love, Relationships, family, and religious identity in the 21st century. So, you know, plainly that's going to be more than a memoir about um, a woman who is a rabbi and um, a man who's in publishing, actually. Hmm. Um, so he knows what he's doing. I'm sure the book is good. Um, he's, let me see. He started out as an evangelical, and now I think he is a Catholic. Oh, Wow. Yeah, 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 and uh, so I'm sure that um, they will they will have a, a really informed point of view on this on the subject. I'm looking forward to that. Well, Marcia, thank you so much for rounding up the show and uh, giving us a sense of what's coming out ahead. There's definitely a lot to look forward to. Oh, thanks for letting me um, rave on about, about something I love to talk about, as you can probably tell. It's always wonderful to have guests on the show who are enthusiastic about their subject matter. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pubwklyradio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. They're all available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 